welcome to the holiday episode of the podcast. This will be the only proper episode for the month of December, as I have a bit of a treat planned for the end of the month that I'll get to at the end. For now, I'm going to start off by suggesting that you get comfortable and maybe take the time to grab a treat for yourself, festive or not, while I take a small moment to confess something. While I very much understand and respect the joy that the holidays bring to many people, this is a time of year that I personally loathe. Before anyone gets too worried, I assure you now that I have no intention on raining on your red and green parade. That said, we are going to be talking about some not-so-jolly interpretations of the icon of the season, so be forewarned. I admit that whether it was getting stuck in the trenches of working retail during the holidays, or getting stuck listening to the same songs over and over, year after year, decade after decade, I am one of those people for whom the idea of holiday cheer is a concept that I hear about, but have no real connection to. That said, in the spirit of being curious about it, and trying to be respectful of those I love that actually love this holiday, while also holding a place for those who hate it, I thought there would be no better place to start unpacking this time of year than to tackle the icon that has become the symbol of Christmas, in Western society anyway. Of course, I'm talking about the man in red himself, jolly old Saint Nick. As a character, this figure has a very long and often forgotten about history that's worth exploring. He's had some pretty interesting helpers along the way, some of which we'll be covering in a separate episode all of their own, and the other that we don't much hear about in North America for what will become obvious reasons. But alas, just like when malls were a thing that you could go to, you never stood in line for an hour to cavort with the hired hands. You were there to see the big man himself, and this episode is going to be all about Santa Claus. To begin, we're going to have to get you to give your memory a good wipe of mall Santas and jolly red-nosed men in suits to match. We're starting at the very beginning, and it turns out that there should be an emphasis on the old part of Jolly Saint Nick. The saint in question was a real man who lived in Myra, which would be a city in Turkey in modern day. And according to Nate Barksdale for History.com, this monk had more accomplishments than simply being generous. Aside from saving people from slavery and dabbling in necromancy, according to Barksdale, Nicholas is considered the patron saint of sailors, children, wolves, and pawnbrokers, among others. We'll be getting to the one ingredient that sticks out there in a bit, but for the moment, let's focus in on that first part where he saved people from a life of slavery, as this is a pretty important piece of lore. According to his bio on the St. Nicholas Center website, the saint was said to have been born into wealth, and upon inheriting a fortune following his parents' untimely death, gave all his money to the sick and the needy, garnering his reputation for generosity. He became a bishop in Myra at a young age, and continued to tend those in need, particularly children. Where we get a more specific trait that would carry over into modern-day traditions was through a legend involving a poor man with three young daughters. According to the center site, the bishop heard of the man, and how, if he didn't find the money to pay the dowries for his three daughters, none of them would be able to marry, and he would be forced to sell them all into slavery, which would have undoubtedly meant prostitution. 
The saint was moved by their plight, and under cover of night, snuck three bags of gold into their home. As tends to happen with legends this old, the details vary, but it's generally agreed upon that the kindly Nicholas left the gold in the stockings that were hung by the fireplace to dry for the night. It's said that following this, children would hang their old socks and stockings to be filled as well. Nicholas was remembered for more than just spoiling the children of the world and saving young girls from being forced into sex work. In a particularly old story, he was also known for raising the dead. One legend that's been going around for long enough to have a wide array of variants is the tale of how St. Nicholas came to the aid of three children that had been lured to their death by an evil butcher. According to the team behind History Answers UK, the story appeared on the books at around 1150 and had traveled through different countries, getting all kinds of makeovers to suit different cultures and time periods. The details may change, but the tale remains mostly the same. There were three boys, usually young children, but sometimes they're older boys, who became lost after they wander outside of the school grounds. In their time of need, they either happen upon or are found and lured by the butcher, who then proceeds to slaughter all three to be sold as meat in his shop. Our frugal and enterprising butcher might have gotten away with it too if he hadn't been visited by the patron saint of children who prayed over the butcher's salting barrels and the boys were miraculously restored to life. The children were returned to their parents, found safe and sound, and for his misdeeds of attempted cannibalism, the butcher then became Père Futard, or Father Whipper, who was then drafted into eternal servitude under Nicholas to punish naughty children. Père Futard, as the name would suggest, was the French variant of the story, and one of the versions where the evil butcher gets some kind of punishment for his actions. Some versions kind of forget about him after the kids come back to life. Now, aside from the whole raising the dead bit, most of what we see in Nicholas of Myra seems pretty in keeping with our modern gift giver. Granted, he was a monk who became a bishop and hadn't gotten the red suit makeover yet, but the elements of the man that we know now were there. At this point, if you're listening with any children who are still of Santa-loving age, this would be a good time to usher them out to watch a holiday movie, because we're going to talk about the way that the real saint made his way around the world. As a hint, it took a lot longer than a single night in a year, and the good clause was reduced to being in multiple parts in multiple places. Alright, I'm assuming that anyone who has a Santa crush is no longer listening. So let's get to the fate of our generous bishop, his death. Nicholas died in the year 343 in Myra on December 6th, though if you go by the Julian calendar, it was actually the 19th. Those of you who are aware of how sainthood usually is attained, especially for those who were awarded the title back in 300 AD, might be getting the sinking feeling that you're about to find out more about the beloved saint than you were ready for. Fear not, however because it appears that Nicholas didn't come to the sticky and usually miserable, painful end that most saints of his time did. Nicholas's death is seemingly unremarkable, as there are no reports that he died in some spectacularly horrific way, such as dying on a cross or being flayed alive. There are reports that he was imprisoned at one point and likely suffered torture and beatings, though from this distance in history, it is difficult to tell because most of those stories are told from within the Christian framework. 
The fact that there's basically nothing to tell of his death has two relevant points for our discussion. The first, and most obvious, is that if there was anything to be said about the way he died, it was either that it was in the normal course of life, or that the records of his method of death were lost. It's equally plausible that either could be true or both could be true at the same time. That leads us to the other point, however, which is that with nothing to tell us of how he died, and if we take it that it was indeed unremarkable, this was a very rare type of venerated saint for the period. Nicholas, you see, was deemed a confessor, or someone who proclaimed the faith through his words and actions, despite the risks inherent in doing so. For many who attained sainthood, especially at that time, to be considered for the holy honor, most of the time one had to be martyred, as dying for God was said to be the ultimate act of faith. There are others who've attained sainthood through the confessor route, but it does make Nicholas stand out to some degree. Because his death was so utterly forgotten or forgettable over the course of history, it allows his generosity and his kindness to be the things that were most remembered about him. This would serve him well in the coming decades and centuries as saint veneration fell out of favor and would damn most of his colleagues into the realms of obscurity. Catholicism spread the word of the good saint to different parts of the world, which is why there are so many similar celebrated figures across cultures. But our version of the saint can be traced back to the region of the Netherlands. We're going to get to their holly jolly problematic celebrations shortly here, but we can't ignore what the Catholic Church did that also helped disseminate Santa among many in the world, this time a little more literally than figuratively. And the Church might never have gotten the chance to do this if not for some less than noble traitors that made their way into the tomb where the saint's remains were in 1087, and stole his bones to bring back to Bari in Italy. At least, that's one story. According to Jason Daly for the Smithsonian, Venice claims that traitors from their city stole the bones in 1099. Then there's the claim that the Norman Crusaders nabbed the bones, bringing them back to Kilkenny in Ireland. This was already super confusing just on its face, but it gets even more complicated when we take into account that the Catholic Church has a tendency to gift relics among themselves. This is a common practice where they will gift to a different church certain holy items, including the desiccated, preserved body parts of known saints. Thus, Nicholas has made his way all over the globe in different archival collections across Europe and North America, assuming that it's actually him. A carbon dating test was done recently on a bone fragment in Illinois, and the results show that the remains are indeed the right age to have been St. Nicholas. That said, there was also a claim made by archaeologists in Turkey recently that claimed that the bones were stolen from a crypt in a city that was formerly Myra, but they were of a different human being altogether. So there is a 50-50 chance that the bones traveled the world through the Catholic Church may have been those of St. Nicholas, or possibly some random priest from the 4th century. All this said, just because our patron saint of children happened to be dead didn't mean that he was going to stop giving gifts. Celebrations of the saint spread throughout the Christian world, his death commemorated in various countries. As mentioned before, among the places that honored the memory of the saint were the Germanic countries, such as the Netherlands, Germany, and Austria. 
Now, each of these countries has its unique elements to their own celebrations that are well worth exploring. But we're going to focus back in on the Dutch and their celebrations. For one, it's through them that we get the iconic name Sinterklaas, which was the combination of Sint for saint and Niklaus. Obviously, over the period of centuries, this became molded into the new name that we know now as Santa Claus, though that's not entirely the way it went for all countries who honored this saint. In Germany, for example, they have the Feast of St. Nicholas on December 6th, and they celebrate the arrival of Father Christmas on the 25th, the two being separate holidays for different people. In the Netherlands, however, the gift exchange for children is often on St. Nicholas Eve, which is December 5th, though some also celebrate a second version on the 25th as well. The Dutch aren't only on our radar for the fact that they gave us the catchy name for a 4th century saint, however. The other reason that we're paying particular attention to them is that they are at least partially responsible for why you see Santa everywhere here in North America. But before we dive into the history of what the Dutch gave us, let's take a slight detour into what they left back home. Now, as a fair warning, one of these certain companions of the good saint is a bit on the problematic side, in that he appears in blackface. We are going to be giving him a bit of a glance, but I don't want to focus in too much on this figure, because this isn't a very widespread character, and he doesn't have a lot of reach really outside of this one region. For clarity, I will openly state that I do not support blackface in any way, and while it would be easy enough to omit talking about him altogether, I think it's important to acknowledge that he does exist, and talk about the fact that he does have a cultural impact. This figure is not uncontested in that country, and I think it's only fair to bring attention to what those people affected by it have to say, if nothing else. If you want to know more, of course, there's more resources for you in the show notes. And with that, let's get to Santa's helpers who didn't quite make the jump with him. We here in North America have been told many tales of Santa having little helpers, though usually that's the easy way of talking about his magical elves that supposedly make his toys. There's a whole other world of elf lore that we will get to by itself another time, but for now, we're going to shed some light on some of the other company that our saint has kept in Europe. There are a lot of other ones than just what I'm going to be talking about here, and you can find a list of them in the show notes to get a better idea of who Santa hangs out with. For the moment, however, let's focus on some of the more famous and infamous ones. Probably the most famous of them all is none other than the beast that is often pitted as the anti-clause, Krampus. This Christmas demon has seen a lot of good PR over the last decade, with everything from North American Krampus runs, to appearances on different TV holiday episodes, to a big-name film starring Tony Collette in 2015. That said, our famous demon is not quite what he appears in pop culture. In reality, he is servant to and working alongside the good Saint Nick. In the Germanic countries, Sinterklaas attends the parades in the streets with Krampus, being the sign of order to their chaos. When he's not around, the Krampus demons are able to lash out and whip at random people in the crowds around the parade. They run through the city lunging at people and whipping at them when they aren't clashing horns with each other like warring bucks. 
When Sinterklaas appears, however, they follow him where he goes, though that doesn't mean they won't still try to whip passers-by when he isn't looking. Santa also does home visits with a small group, including some angels to travel with, and at least a couple of Krampus demons. During the visits, Sinterklaas is more of the stoic and safe figure, getting a list of good deeds of the children from their parents and having his angels on guard to keep Krampus in line. That said, there is a part of the house visits that usually erupts in chaos as the demons make their way into the house to scare the children and fill the house with a lot of noise from the bells on their costume. Krampus isn't the only one to wield a whip, however. We did, after all, learn earlier about our infamous butcher and his getting drafted into eternal servitude for a slight case of cannibalism and murder. In certain regions of France, the good saint might not have a horned demon following him around, but he might still employ Père Ptard for threats of beatings for the naughty. Depending on where he is, he might be carrying a bundle of sticks on his back to be used as a lash for those in need of punishment. But in other areas, he has been known to carry a sack, much like the Fest of Demons in Germany and Austria. It should be noted that where Krampus or Perfutard plan to take you once you've landed in their sack varies greatly depending on who told the story. That said, where the two figures begin to diverge is in how Perfutard evolved. The Whipping Father can distinguish himself from the other companions in that sometimes he's not even a companion, but a free agent of chaos and pain. In the 1930s, Perfutard made the jump from Europe to America, appearing there as Father Flog. There's not much information showing where he was or why he faded away, but upon being reborn in North America, the Whipping Father was no longer servile to Nicholas, and functioned as almost an anti-clause, complete with an evil version of his wife. It's not clear that this is taking any cues from the legend of the evil butcher and his wife, but the pair are just as hostile and awful. According to History Daily, the stories around the Flog couple was that Father Flog would administer ironic punishments at the encouragement of his wife. The tales told were that if a child was deemed a liar, they cut out his tongue. If a little girl stole, they cut off her hands, and other horrific overreactions. While this would have made a good story for around the campfire, with the changing face of Christmas celebrations, it's not hard to see why Father Flog didn't remain a part of the entourage for long. And some of it may well have to do with his change in face. Originally seen as just a disheveled man with a knotted beard and a dirty face, Peter Futard grew to be almost like an alter version of the saint, sometimes dressed in the same outfit made of darker fabric. This isn't entirely surprising, considering the narrative around the two figures fixes the Whipping Father as a dark mirror to Father Christmas's kindness and generosity. The problem with this, however, is that some people have taken that dark mirror a bit too literally in harmful ways. As we've discussed earlier, St. Nicholas had lived in Turkey, and while we have little to go on in terms of verifying his heritage, scholars believe that he may have been Mediterranean or of the region, which would have made him much browner than the usual super-white Santa we've come to know. As St. Nicholas got much paler when he made his way into European legends, his companions got darker, including Perfutard. What used to look like a shabby, unkempt foil to the pristine Nicholas 
became a man in darker robes and eventually the figure painting his face black. Now, the Whipping Father did used to have dirt on his face, but it should be noted that this figure has been somewhat co-opted by far-right groups in recent years. And there are other uncomfortable characters that that group has more or less adopted. While the idea of a character drafted into eternal servitude with a black-painted face might be uncomfortable, it gets a whole lot more uncomfortable when that figure has great big red lips painted on him and a curly wig. This figure is not Peter Futard, but Svart Piet, or Black Pete to the Dutch. This character is less scary, but no less problematic, as this helper tends to be less punitive, but more of a buffoon in gesture-like attire in blackface. Svart Piet is a controversial figure in the Netherlands, and, historically speaking, a rather recent one. While his backstory is a bit foggy, it was generally agreed upon that his origin was likely in a story written by a schoolteacher in the 19th century. The official tale is that Svart Piet was a servant to Nicholas, who has come on a steamboat from Spain. Occasionally, this Spanish starting point has been used as a justification for his appearance, as has his association with chimneys, though these days, Black Pete is drawing protests that call to change or retire the character. There are some areas that have since changed him to Soot Pete, the character no longer in full black paint, and instead with dashes of dirt on his face. That said, there are members of the black community in the Netherlands who have voiced their concerns and talked about their experiences that have been influenced by this character over the years. Again, I'll point you to the show notes to get more information on this figure if you would like to know more, particularly about the accounts of the people currently calling for that change. And that's quite enough of Santa's less-than-helpful entourage. Let's get back to the big man himself, who wasn't quite that big until much later in this story. So far, our journey hasn't had much to do with the North Pole or elves, but we've seen Santa travel over the world in the form of human remains being gifted to different churches. We've also seen his effigy traverse his way through a lot of different places in Europe, but it wasn't until the Dutch came to settle in North America that the saint would make a full transformation into Santa Claus. According to an editorial on History.com, Santa was first introduced to America via Dutch immigrants in the 1770s. This area that was reported on was in New York, but it would be reasonable to think that similar gatherings would have happened among Dutch communities in other parts of the country as well. The reason that New York stands out, however, is because the traditions around Sinterklaas became popular enough there to garner the attention of Washington Irving, whom you might remember as the author of that story about a horseman who was keen to chase down a certain Mr. Crane. Thanks to Irving's writings, this monk from Turkey, who had never set foot in North America and likely didn't even know about the continent, could add patron saint of New York to his list of responsibilities. Santa didn't quite look like himself, however, as this version of the saint wore neither pristine robes nor the red suit. Instead, he was depicted in the fashion-forward ensemble of a blue three-cornered hat, red waistcoat, and yellow stockings, or a huge pair of Flemish trunk hose. His keen fashion sense wasn't the only thing that he picked up on this side of the world, however. His mode of transportation and 
and general shape were the result of a Christmas poem that the author had never intended to publish. Episcopalian minister Clement Clark Moore took inspiration from the Sinterklaas traditions when he wrote his poem Twas the Night Before Christmas in 1822. The poem was originally written to entertain his three daughters over the holidays, and this is where we can trace back the image of Santa having gained some weight and traveling through the night sky by reindeer. Moore felt the poem was frivolous and hadn't really intended it for a wider audience, but eventually relented and published it. From here, it was a political cartoonist by the name of Thomas Nast who illustrated the poem in 1881 that solidified the image that now adorns our displays in holiday parades every year. The American Santa image of the jolly old elf was born, and from here, he would become the symbol of the holiday, gradually shifting from saint to folk figure, now with a new home in the North Pole, and a wife figure he'd never had in life. The image that Nast created was built upon by others, and his popularity as a Christmas figure was only bolstered by the 19th century revitalizations in holiday celebrations around the period. The increase in the industrialization of both Western Europe and America also fed into how Victorians celebrated, with gift-giving increasing in popularity. As early as the 1840s, Santa figures were being used to draw children, and more specifically their parents, to shops to encourage them to buy from them. Live Santa actors were brought in not long after, and as of the 1890s, the Salvation Army Santas were established when the organization would dress up homeless men to draw attention to their fundraiser. This is all well and good, but what about that insidious Santa origin story that you've no doubt heard over the years? You know the one. It's that tale that's told in hushed voices by that one friend or relative that usually isn't all that into the festive spirit, and tends to be a little on the cynical side. As long as there are no children in the room, this person has no doubt told you that you've got the whole tale of Santa wrong, and that it's all just a corporate ploy dreamt up by some soft drink company. After all, is it really a coincidence that their company colors just happen to be the same as the man's suit? And he's only been their holiday mascot since the early 1900s? Well, as atonement for my previous life as a killjoy know-it-all, I can assure you that while Santa has indeed been a big part of the Coca-Cola Company holiday campaigns, and it's very likely that this was part of the reason that this character disseminated as far as he did in North America and the world at large, the image of the jolly old elf had already been well-established almost 90 years before this, and the drawings of Thomas Nast had become popular back in the 1880s. The persistent tale that Santa was really just a figure that was given a corporate wash and had been paraded out every year to feast on nostalgic ideas about the holidays is a comforting one for cynics, who usually like to decry the commercialization of this time of year. But it has, in a way, become its own lore around Christmas. It presents to people a kind of choice about whether to partake in the holiday icon as you see him now, or to reject him in subtle ways that suggest that the person you see isn't who he should be or was meant to be. While it can be frustrating for someone to see a cheerful figure like Santa Claus being made into something suspicious and cynical, it's at least the tamer version of what happens when good Saint Nick has nothing to counterbalance his purity and kindness. There isn't a holiday mascot that hasn't had at least some subversive take or version to enter pop culture, 
even if it's just within local spheres. And with an icon like Santa Claus, this was inevitable. After all, for most people, the idea that something is all good all the time isn't one that they can cling to for very long. In fact, this concept of something being too good to be true was at the core of 1947's Miracle on 34th Street. Even that story, however, had its own version of the bad Santa trope, depicting a Santa actor who'd become too drunk to do his job properly, and his badness was the catalyst for the events of that film. This points out something that is important for us to consider here. In North America, our version of Santa is made up to be the epitome of goodness, but, until more recently, he had nothing to counterbalance his kind nature. As we saw from the European versions of Saint Nick, there was usually somebody to represent that chaotic or scary side to the holiday, adding to the liminal feeling that we celebrate where the darkest part of the year meets the change in the season. If we think back to the way that the saint dealt with beings like Krampus or Père Futard, he was typically that figure of not only light, but order. He takes on the role of protector and provider, but he wasn't without some element of punisher too. Marina Warner described him as a kind of disciplinarian figure in her book, No Go the Boogeyman, where he could bring joy to those who deserved it, but he could induce fear as well. That said, his variety of fear is unique to him, and that he will seemingly never hurt you, but that doesn't mean his little helpers won't. Now, when I say that Santa won't hurt you, that is going to take some unwinding. If you are a horror movie fan, you likely already have the name of at least two or three of up to 50 Christmas movies on the tip of your tongue that feature a deranged Kris Kringle coming to slaughter the naughty on Christmas Eve. For some, this is the ultimate subversion of the image of Santa, a man who's known for generosity and goodness, being reframed as a figure of fear, who takes from people their security and their lives. What makes this alternative rendering of Jolly Old Saint Nick different, however, is that while there are bad versions of him, for the most part, it's never actually him. Sure, we have rude, surly, and inappropriate Santas like the one we see in A Christmas Story, or even the more on-the-nose film, Bad Santa. But these are just stand-ins that are clearly not the real deal. Even in the realm of horror, the saint is usually never the one doing the hacking and slashing. In films like Silent Night, Deadly Night, the horror begins with a man in a Santa suit committing murders and sexual assault in front of a child, who then grows up to become a punisher of the naughty in a Santa suit himself. As with most killer Santa films, the killers only look like the holiday saint, donning the clothing, but not the mannerisms. In the instances where Santa is understood to be himself and still acting as more of a violent presence, there will be a reason presented. A good example of this was in the 2015 film, A Christmas Horror Story. Now I will warn you that there's a twist to this film that reveals itself very late in the movie, and if you haven't seen it yet, I won't spoil it but I will be talking about a larger part of the plot that might ruin some of the surprise. With that in mind, let's examine our killer Santa, who is, as far as we're led to believe, the real thing. This is one of the cases where Santa is still recognizable, but he's gotten a minor makeover. He's not sporting a round, softer-looking body, but a larger and clearly stronger one. He's a big man, 
and when his elves start to succumb to a zombie virus that makes them attack him, he is forced to use his strength to kill them for his own survival. And make no mistake, the kills are gruesome. This killer is clearly affected by his actions, his remorse and hurt over what he's forced to do, very much on display. But he remains the stoic pillar of order incarnate in the crisis. He is the one to represent good even when he's slicing through people he loves. In this case, however, it culminates in a battle against Krampus, the demon now reimagined as the antithesis of what he represents. Again, what we see in their fight with each other is a more polarized clash than we saw in Europe, where Santa is still all good, even if he is a killer, and Krampus has nothing to do with the holiday icon other than to represent a bestial chaotic adversary that he has to put in his place. The truth of what this really is does get revealed in the end of the film, but when we see from Santa's perspective, we understand that he still sees himself as representing that spirit of goodness and protection, even though his kindness has been cast off in the name of defending the first two qualities. And this is all well and good for that Santa figure, but what happens when our saint isn't quite what we thought he was? What if he's not a saint at all, but a strange, mysterious monster that harms children instead of treating them? This is the question we get to confront in the 2010 Finnish film, Rare Exports. To be fair, this film doesn't quite let Santa actually do any real harm as such, and it's really more his helpers who are doing the work. But that's the setup to what's coming. Even though Santa is on his way, it's not for anything good. This creature has more in common with the cannibalistic ogres and giants of folklore for the Scandinavian regions, making the holiday gift giver look and feel like something more in keeping with a cryptid than a magical elf of generosity. The end result is that the icon actually seems like a hybrid between what we know as Santa and Krampus, sporting horns and having children abducted in sacks. In this sense, this movie gives us a truly unique take on the icon, still allowing him to be ancient and outside the realm of human limitations, but also outside of any kind of human empathy or behavior. He's no longer the enforcer of the moral code of Christianity, nor any kind of human morality code at all. Instead, he's something silent, massive, and unknowable. This is a good time to note that this film is an outlier, and though horror is the only genre capable of getting away with making Santa into something truly bad, there's a reason that it's almost never actually him. For many people, the idea of Father Christmas is so tied to children, there's a kind of understanding that anything you do to darken the icon, you're doing to a child. This might explain why the one who hurts people is never even close to being the true version of Santa. Rare Exports even pulls this card, hinting at what Santa would do if he were released, but letting the helpers do the dirty work of the actual scaring and hurting. We also have to take into account that most of these films are fine with Santa being a killer, but there are no children among the bodies that he leaves behind. That doesn't mean they aren't going to get hurt, however. Take the example of Silent Night, Deadly Night, wherein Billy is traumatized as a young child at the sight of someone dressed as Santa killing his parents. Billy's trauma is never actually dealt with or helped by any of the adults around him, and when he snaps, he basically reverts right back to that childhood self, 
looking to punish those around him with his axe. We're going to focus in on that for a second, because this is a clever way that the filmmakers managed to divorce any actual children from Santa's naughty list of victims. There are some films that will go the extra mile and force a child to play Kevin McAllister against a figure that he loves, like in the French film, Game Over. But even that story's not about Santa himself doing the harm. It is easier for audiences to forgive the subversive icon if we know that he's not the real thing, or that he targets adults that have a chance of fighting back. Or maybe there are just some holiday figures that we can't help but want to be a little bit good. Santa Claus is something that has taken on a life of its own, and with new traditions emerging, like the more recent Elf on the Shelf phenomenon, we aren't done seeing this holiday icon grow and change with the times. Because of this, it's unlikely that this is the last we've seen of the Killer St. Nick stories. But, with the arrival of creepy alternatives here in North America, we're seeing that the jolly old elf can settle into his more traditional role of being the kindly gift-giver, rather than having to take the darker aspects on in his personality. The arrival of Krampus has given him a rival that allows him to be a defender of the holiday, despite their history of working together. Before even that, we had figures like the Grinch and Jack Skellington here in North America to play off the old saint, providing some cathartic alternative to him that could vent our frustrations over the less-than-ideal parts of the holiday, or our ennui with things that have become so familiar that we forget why we do them. The popularity of these characters just goes to show that our need for a darker side to the holidays is bigger than we are often allowed to acknowledge at this time of year. That said, Santa, it seems, just isn't usually up to the task of being bad enough for us. For those kinds of things, he seems pretty content to just leave it up to the professionals. And with that, I think it's time we let the holiday icon get back to what he does best. Thank you so much for taking the time to let me be your guide to the evolution of Santa Claus. You may have noticed that this episode is a touch shorter than it normally is, and the reason for that is that I have a special surprise that I have been working on in the background. Now, in actuality, this surprise had been something I'd planned for October, but it took me far longer to write it than I had anticipated, and because of the things that I had hoped to do with it, I had more or less delivered an impossible task to my poor friend and sound engineering wizard, Jonathan Glass. But we have been working on it since then, and I am very excited to be giving you all the gift of a Halloween story for Christmas. This is an original story that I wrote and narrated, and you can expect that over the holiday season. And in other news, I have a couple of announcements to make. The first being that I am putting the podcast on hiatus into the new year, and I will be returning to the bi-weekly schedule in March. I have many things planned for the new year, and I am wanting to get a good head start on them as soon as possible, but I am going to need time to do that. I will be continuing to update my Patreon in the meantime, however, so if you are interested in the little extras that I'm offering, please do go check that out. And if you are in need of something to keep you entertained while you're waiting, you can always check out my new book. Yes, I have just released a new book in my Brayside series called Shadow Season. This is a sequel to the book Downtown that I wrote back in 2018, but you can still read it as a standalone. There is a link to the new book in the description of the YouTube video, as well as on the website. 
If you are a big fan of vampires, horror stories in a modern setting, and reading about people who are just trying to figure out what to do with their adult lives after graduating from college, you may very well enjoy Shadow Season. And I do believe that's it for now. If you're wanting copies of the transcript, or to hear episodes early, you will be able to find that over at Patreon. $5 patrons get extras, including bloopers where you get to hear a lot of my cat's opinions on my many, many, many mistakes that I make while I'm recording. I also need to give a shout out to my lovely patrons, Maggie, Tim, Jonathan, Melissa, Rihanna, Bibliobot, and newcomer Megan. You guys are genuinely the reason I'm able to make this podcast available in all the platforms that it's in, and I am so grateful for your support. Thank you so much. And speaking of support, as always, I have to say a huge thank you to Jonathan Glass, who's worked so hard on this episode and the coming story. He has been super busy himself working on a remix song for the band System Sin as well, and a new project that is coming on the horizon. You can find out more about him on his Instagram, Sea of Dead Faces, which is linked in the show notes. There is also his website that you can find there, so do check him out. And I'm already working very hard on a topic that you'll really be able to sink your teeth into in March. And in April, we're going to see which mysterious figure among the universal monsters is waiting in the wings. So until then, remember to put your milk and cookies out, keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.